Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. Oh, just give me a second. Smell of swallowing a freaking hot dog. All right, there we go. Hello, everybody. Happy evening. This is Sam, host of Open World, formerly known as Against the Grain. It has been a couple weeks, and my goodness, have I been busy with a bunch of new, interesting, and fun experiences. I have started to help a local farmer here with harvest. That has been interesting. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. That was scary. But, I mean, when they told me it was going to be easy, it's just a matter of, you know, getting a handle of it. They definitely definitely weren't lying. Um, So there's been a couple of reasons why I have been learning how to do harvest. Number one, the money is nice. Number two, um, being the Saskatchewan Fringe Farm Ambassador, I felt like it would be a primo opportunity to get involved with the farming community and start learning how to do this because I have worked in a chicken barn before. I have worked in a dairy barn doing milking, not meat cattle, but milking cattle. Um, I have my own critters. I've been doing bailing, doing ditch bales for the last four or five years, something along those lines. I have my own chickens, so I've been learning how to do that. And uh, I've had my own cattle before. And on top of everything... I felt like it would just be the perfect opportunity to start learning how to seed and look after a farm and harvest. So that's what I've been doing right now. This last week, I was there for six days, the week before I was getting ready for harvest. So I may or may not be here this next week. It is quite loud in the tractor, unfortunately. It's very difficult to hear anything when you're in there. Um... And I wouldn't want it to be too muffled. I would want my my shows to be fairly clear and hearable and not have a bunch of loud tractor noises in the background. However, that might be a road I decide to take. And on top of that, when I'm out in the field, I've got no Wi-Fi. So if I'm out in the field, unfortunately, it would be just a a solo show. There would be no guests because I have no access to um, being able to... uh, play with the dashboard to be able to let, lay guests on. So it rained yesterday, and uh, today we have some time for radio show, which has been absolutely incredible. I missed you guys so much. Um, the Freedomizer Network has got some really cool things coming up. Um, I will keep you guys in the loop for that. A couple of quickie housekeeping tips that we're going to go through. Um, Fringe Farm Network, we have released our new... We are releasing our new membership program. So if you are anywhere in Canada and you would like to join the Fringe Farm Network, Fringe Farm, or hold on here, I'm just going to pull up the website. If you are anywhere in Canada and you would like to join as either a producer or consumer, or just somebody who wants to stay in the loop of things, 
but you're not one to cause trouble. You just want to pay attention to what's going on. Head over to fringefarmnetwork.org. Fringe, F-R-I-N-G-E, farm, F-A-R-M, network, N-E-T-W-O-R-K.org, O-R-G, and sign up. We will get you guys involved. We'll get you the information that you require. And if you would like to start producing and selling directly to your your community members, we are trying to build a parallel economy to help ride out the Great Reset. Because I don't know about you, but when the food chain reaction game said that groceries were going to be going up like 400% in like 2023, 2024, they weren't lying. I just went to farmer's market today because I run the local farmer's market in my town. And uh, I bought a bunch of beautiful fruit from one of our vendors. Now, I'm not going to sit here and complain about my vendor. If that's what people are going to take that as, absolutely not. Don't even try and take it that way. The fruit that he sells is absolutely beautiful. They get it straight from B.C., um, straight from British Columbia, and they work really hard. They're incredibly amazing people. So before I begin to complain, don't even. Don't even. Because I am so happy to have him there and his son and everything is good. However. Paying $30 for six nectarines, six peaches, a little bag of grapes, and four apples. $30 Canadian. A small basket of fruit really made me sad to see. Not because I don't value the, the freshness and the top quality fruit that he has. It's just making me really sad that getting your hands on Canadian produce especially raw ingredients, is starting to become more and more unfeasible. That's the part that's the part that's making me sad. The farmers markets quite often charge more than the grocery stores when personally it should be the other way around. It really should. And the fact that these big corporations are able to charge so much less for food lab bullshit that can literally only be made with products, ingredients, and stuff from a lab. Anybody and their dog could go outside and put a broccoli in the ground and grow broccoli. It kind of makes you wonder what the hell is going on and what is going on in the minds of Canadians that they're willing to pay less for cheap shit that's making them sick than their neighbor buying a piece of broccoli for them where they should be able to pay less. I'm not to say that the broccoli isn't worth more. It's definitely worth more because it's way higher in value. But these things should be so abundant that everybody should have access to them. And the fact that it's not, we've got a really big problem going on in our local communities. So that's housekeeping tip number one. Uh, housekeeping tip number two, I am having some soap sales and some crochet sales and things kind of sales in my Facebook group. You can find me on Facebook. That needlework, though, it's got a big pink rose on the face. Um, if you want to cash in on getting some cheap soap or cheap needlework, because I really want to clear out some of the old stock that I have, because there's a bunch of new things that I want to try, and a bunch of new things that I want to um, make, especially when I'm done harvest this fall. Um, There's a bunch of cool stuff that I want to get going, and I don't want to have 
buckets full and bags full and all of this old product kicking around that I've had for the last two years, I would rather it just get out the door and uh, start working on some new stuff so I don't have to keep dragging all this old stuff around. So if you want to try to get your hands on some cheap soap, um, handmade, homemade, locally sourced tallow soap, or um, needlework items, you can check out my group there because I'm going to have a second sale here soon. Must miss the first one, but we're going to have a second one here soon. Um, I think that's all I really have for housekeeping tips today, I think. Um, there's a couple things I wanted to go over today. Um, specifically, there's some parts in a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the first chapter, I was just finishing reading the intro chapter when I was in the tractor the other day, because while I am waiting for um, the combine to finish filling so I can zip over there and get that combine empty to take it over to the truck, I was reading this first chapter here in this book. Now, this book is by Stephen R. Covey. Covey? Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, R. Covey, C-O-V-E-Y. If I butchered the name, I apologize. But, um, yeah, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change. And it kind of blew me away just a little bit. I'm going to read this first chapter for you because this falls right along in line. I will be taking a little bit of pieces, parts and pieces from this book. Not the whole book, so I'm not going to play drives, but there's a couple things that don't really, I don't really care for or um, the information in there I don't feel like would be entirely useful to convey in terms of hermetic principles and natural law, although, although, um, this book so far, like, it, there's certain things that's like, you know what? Have you ever had it happen where the stars just kind of align and when something happens to you, you know that it was just meant to be in your path and it's no coincidence that it just happened at that specific time and it just happened to be that specific thing and then you're sitting here scratching your head like, holy crap, that just happened? That's kind of what happened in this book because it's been quite a while since I've gone to the library and in the library in the back, there is a section of books there that um, the, the, they get donated from community members or they get taken off the shelves and then sold and, you know, things like that. They, they, they take books and resell them for 25 cents a piece. And this is where I found this book amongst many others. Um, a lot on eugenics and things right now. So I'm going to be going into some eugenics and shit here in the near future because I thought that was actually going to be really interesting. Um, but something just told me to like, I didn't even read like, to be honest, like I've I've got kind of like tunnel vision going on where like there's certain things where it's just like I don't even realize until later <laughs> when it just kind of clicks. And it's like, oh man, if I would actually like paid attention to that, like, you know, five days ago that would have made a whole lot more sense but anyway here I am and uh something was just screaming at me to read this book like just pick this book up and read it and I was just like nah but then I was like you know no we're gonna go we're gonna give it a go and when I tell you the first chapter you guys holy smokes okay I'm gonna read a little bit of the couple of pages in this first chapter here so sit tight because this kind of made me scratch my head. Um, okay, going forward. So, just finding the page here. 
the personality and character ethics. At the same time, in addition to my research on perception, I was also deeply immersed in an in-depth study of the success literature published in the United States since 1776. I was reading or scanning literally hundreds of books, articles, and essays in the fields such as self-improvement, popular psychology, and self-help. At my fingertips was the sum of the substance of what a free and democratic people considered to be the keys to successful living. As my study took me back through 200 years of writing about success, and just a quick pause note that this book was published in, let me see, let me see. Pretty sure it was published in 86. Give me one second here. So I'm going to get back to that. Copyright 1989. Okay, so this isn't a brand new book. This is from like before the 90s. This book is older than I am. Not necessarily this book specifically, but the guy who wrote this book, the, the information contained in these pages is older than I am. So he was putting this together before I was even a thing. Continuing on. Um, as my study took me back through 200 years, years about, about success, I noticed a startling pattern emerging in the content of the literature. Because of our own pain and because of similar pain I had seen in the lives and relationships of many people, I had worked with throughout the years. I began to feel more and more that much of the success literature in the past 50 years was superficial. It was filled with social, social image consciousness, techniques and quick fixes, with social band-aids and aspirin that address acute problems and sometimes even appear to solve them temporarily but left the underlying chronic problems untouched to fester and resurface time and again. In stark contrast, almost all the literature in the first 150 years or so focused on what could be called true ethic. As the foundation of success, things like integrity, humility, fidelity, temperance, courage, justice, patience, industry, simplicity, modesty, and the golden rule. Benjamin Franklin's autobiography is representative of that literature. It is basically the story of one man's effort to integrate certain principles and habits deep within his nature. The character ethic that there are basic principles of effective living and that people can only experience true success and enduring happiness as they learn and integrate these principles into their basic character. But shortly after World War I, and pay very close attention to where this is going because I have talked about a particular man in the past who has quite a lot of influence in the U.S. about how we perceive things. Okay, shortly after World War I, the basic view of success shifted from the character ethic to what we might call the personality ethic. Success became more of a function of personality, of public image, of attitudes and behaviors, skills and techniques that lubricate the processes of human interaction. 
This personality ethic essentially took two paths. One was human and public one was human and public relations techniques. And the other was positive mental attitude, PMA. Some of this philosophy was expressed in inspiring and sometimes valid maxims such as your attitude determines your altitude. Smiling wins more friends than frowning. And whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. Other parts of the personality approach were clearly manipulative, even deceptive, encouraging people to use techniques to get other people to like them or to fake interest in the hobbies of others to get out of them what they wanted or to use the power look or to intimidate their way through life. Some of this literature acknowledged character as an ingredient of success, but tended to compartmentalize it rather than recognize it as a foundational, as foundational and catalytic. Reference to the character ethic became mostly lip service, and basic, the basic thrust was quick fix influence techniques power strategies, communication skills, and positive attitudes. This personality ethic, I began to realize, was the subconscious source of the solutions Sandra and I were attempting to use with our son. The beginning of this book, he had gone over a little bit how his son was kind of sucking at baseball, and his wife and him were using reinforcement techniques and things like that in order to try to get him to be better but then felt like they were failing i'm not going to read all that out but that's just a tldr of that and him doing this research helped him realize what we're about to read now Mm -hmm. as i thought more deeply about the difference between the personality and character ethics i realized that sandra and i had been getting social mileage out of our children's good behavior and in her eyes this son my this son simply didn't measure up our image of ourselves and our role as good caring parents was even deeper than our image of our son and perhaps influenced it There was a lot more wrapped up in the way we were seeing and handling the problem than our concern for our son's welfare. As Sandra and I talked, we became painfully aware of the powerful influence of our own character and motives and are out of harmony with our deeper values and could lead to conditional love and eventually our son's lessened sense of self-worth. So we determined to focus our efforts on us, not on our techniques, but on our deepest motives and our perception of him. Instead of trying to change him, we tried to stand apart, to separate us from him, and to sense his identity individually, separateness and worth. Oh, sorry, individuality, separateness and worth. Through deep thought and exercise of faith and prayer, we began to see our son in terms of his own uniqueness. We saw within him layers and layers of potential that would be realized at his own pace and speed. We decided to relax and get out of his way and let his own personality emerge. We saw our natural role as being able to affirm, enjoy, and value him. 
We also consciously, conscience, consciously, whatever, worked on our motives and cultural internal sources of security so that our own feelings and worth were not dependent on our children's acceptable behavior. As we loosened up our old perception, our son had developed value-based motives. New feelings began to emerge. We found ourselves enjoying him instead of comparing or judging him. We stopped trying to clone him in our image and measure him against social expectations. We stopped trying to kindly, positively manipulate him into an acceptable social mold. Because we saw him as fundamentally adequate and able to cope with life, we stopped protecting him against the ridicule of others. He had been nurtured on this protection, so he went through some withdrawal pains, which he expressed and which we accepted but did not necessarily respond to. We don't need to protect you was the unspoken message. You're fundamentally okay. As the weeks and months passed, he began to feel a quiet confidence and affirmed himself. He began to blossom at his own pace and speed. He became outstanding as measured by standard social criteria, academically, socially, and athletically, at a rapid clip, far beyond the so-called natural developmental process. As the years passed, he was elected to several student body leadership positions He developed into an all-state athlete and started bringing home straight-A report cards. He developed an engaging and guileless personality that had enabled him to relate in a non-threatening way to all kinds of people. Sandra and I believe that our son's socially impressive accomplishments were more a serendipitous expression of the feelings he had about himself than merely a response to social reward. This was an amazing experience for Sandra and me and very instructional one in dealing with our children in other roles as well. It brought our awareness on a very personal level, the vital difference between personality ethic and character ethic of success. The psalmist expressed in our conviction well, search your own heart with all diligence for out of it will flow the issue of life, issues of life. Okay, we're going to take a quickie break here. When I get back, I'm going to read the next section of this chapter because this is also extremely important in talking about character ethic versus what this author defines as personality ethic. And I, again, these couple pages of loan have been so in my mind reaffirming and have boosted my confidence that okay maybe I'm not crazy that maybe this is the way to go I mean granted you can find validation in anything but the way this man explains it makes a whole lot more sense and I do have some criticisms about some of the things he said and we will get into that here right away so we will be back in a couple minutes Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you're tuning in from, my fellow Liberty lovers. This is Amber S. from Living with Freedom Ministries, reminding you to tune in on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific time, for the Living with Freedom show, where we'll embrace what living with freedom can look like physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and in everyday life. 
That's 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, here on Freedomizer Radio. Earthing, also known as grounding, is the act of touching our body's skin directly to the earth, just like our ancestors did as they slept, sat, and walked on the ground nearly every day of their lives. This simple connection allows Earth's natural negative electrons to enter the human body, pacifying dangerous free radicals, which, if left unchecked, can cause severe damage to cells that can lead to many chronic diseases. Ground Therapy's patented process and suite of products were designed for you to experience all the benefits of grounding in your busy and modern lifestyle and you'll experience the benefits of grounding within the safety and comfort of your home or office throughout the entire day, just as if you were touching the earth itself. The information is provided for general informational purposes only. The contents are not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Ground Therapy Incorporated makes no representations about the efficiency, appropriateness, or suitability of any specific tests, procedures, treatments, services, opinions, healthcare providers, or other information that may be contained in or available through the information provided. Peace, what's up, y'all? This is Ninja Scroll. Check out my newest album, Renewed Mind, with songs like this. Salve Coagula. Salve Coagula. Tear down and rebuild the whole system. Bible prophecy fulfilled. Snakes in the grass. Son of a dish. got snakes in the grass. Rally through the high pass. Traps all laid out. Avoid the bomb blast. I got ya. I got ya right where I want ya. Like a raw line in the field, I stalked ya. Beeped up on ya. Peeped on your aura. Laying in wait with a two pounds on ya. Once I get ya, you'll be a corner. Can you hear me now? Hey, just all part of the game. In the scene with solo, now it's time to open up your eyes. Look at how you're living just to follow where we're sitting. And the new norms, the new world order. Yeah, go get yours right now at officialninjascroll.webs.com. That's official.ninjascroll.webs.com. Trying to show you everything, but you ain't care. Got you running scared. It's fear that is the main weapon. Peace to the people that was always prepping. I'm stepping on toes trying to wake you up. Imagine waking up in a trunk. What is grooming? What if I told you we had a 40% increase of human and sex trafficking in our country due to COVID lockdowns? We already had high numbers to begin with. One's Purpose is an amazing organization pounding the pavement every day, helping these survivors get help. Unfortunately, they do not have the funding they need for a safe house. In the state of Oregon, we have zero safe houses for these survivors who have endured the most heinous of crimes. The time is now to get involved. The time is now to help stop human trafficking. Please go to onespurpose.com to get involved. If you need help and if you know someone who needs to get help, please contact 541-221-3448. Make a donation. Make a difference. All right, everybody. This is Sam, host of Open World, formerly known as against the grain, and I just shoved my whole supper down my neck while we were on commercial break, so i got to try and clean off my teeth. Okay, so first part, we went over um, Stephen R. Covey, and um, we're reading a little bit of his book. This book was written, uh, copyright, in 89. This book is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change. And I want to read this to you guys today. 
because I feel like, excuse me, but I feel like this information is key, particularly when talking about natural law, particularly when talking about self-healing and getting yourself together rather than using external projections. Focus on yourself and then all the other things fall into place. That's not to say that things like the character ethic and the personality ethic are mutually exclusive. What it means to say, however, is that one must be in a solid foundation in order to really get somewhere with proper intent in the second. Which is kind of funny, but I will I'll, I'll get into some criticisms after I read the second part. So the first part we read character ethic and personality ethic. This one, primary and secondary greatness. My experience with my son, my study of perception, and my reading of the success literature coalesced to create one of those aha experiences in life when suddenly things clicked into place. I was suddenly able to see the powerful impact of the personality ethic and to clearly understand those subtle, often consciously unidentified discrepancies between what I knew to be true, some things I had been taught many years ago as a child and things were deep in my own inner sense of value, and the quick fix philosophies that surrounded me every day. I understood at a deeper level why, as I had worked through the years with people from all walks of life, I had found that the things I was teaching and knew to be effective were often a variance with these popular voices. I am not suggesting that elements of the personality ethic, personality growth, communication skill training, and education in the field of influence strategies and positive thinking are not beneficial, in fact, sometimes essential for success, sorry, essential, essential for success. I believe they are. But there are secondary, not primary traits. Sorry, but these are secondary, not primary traits. Perhaps in utilizing our human capacity to build on the foundation of generations before us, we have inadvertently become so focused on our own building that we have forgotten the foundation that holds it up. Or in reaping for so long where we have not sown, perhaps we have forgotten the need to sow. If I try to use human influence strategies and tactics of how to get other people to do what I want to work better, to be more motivated to like me and each other while my character is fundamentally flawed, marked by duplicity and insincerity, then in the long run, I cannot be successful. My duplicity will breed distrust and everything I do, even using so-called good human relations techniques, will be perceived as manipulative. It simply makes no difference on how good the rhetoric is or even how good the intentions are if there is little or no trust. There is no foundation for permanent success. Only basic goodness gives life to technique. To focus on technique is like cramming your way through school. 
you sometimes get by, perhaps even get good grades, but if you don't pay the price day in and day out, you never achieve true mastery of the subjects you study or develop an educated mind. Did you ever consider how ridiculous it would be to try to cram on a farm, to forget to plant in spring, play all summer, and then cram in the fall to bring in the harvest? The farm is a natural system. The price must be paid and the process followed. You always reap what you sow. There is no shortcut. This principle is also true, ultimately, in human behavior, in human relationships. They, too, are natural systems based on the law of harvest. In the short run, in the artificial social system such as school, you may be able to get by if you learn how to manipulate the man-made rules to, quote, play the game, unquote. In most one-shot or short-lived human interactions, you can use the personality ethic to get by and make favorable impressions through charm and skill and pretending to be interested in other people's hobbies. You can pick up quick, easy techniques that may work in short-term situations, but secondary traits alone have no permanent worth in long-term relationships. Eventually, if there isn't deep integrity and fundamental character strength, the challenges of life will cause true motives to surface and human relationship failure will replace short-term success. Many people with secondary greatness, that is, social recognition for their talents, lack primary greatness or goodness in their character. Sooner or later, you will see this in every long-term relationship they have, whether it is with a business associate, a spouse, a friend, a teenage child going through an identity crisis, etc. It is character that communicates most eloquently, as Emerson puts it, quote, you are sh you, what you are shouts so loudly in my ears, I cannot hear what you say, unquote. There are, of course, situations where people have character strengths, but they lack communication skills and undoubtedly affects the quality of relationships as well. But the effects are still secondary. In the last analysis, what we are communicates more eloquently than anything we say or do. We all know it. There are people we trust absolutely because we know their character. Whether they're eloquent or not, whether they have the human relation techniques or not, we trust them and we work successfully with them. In the words of William George Jordan, quote, into the hands of every individual is given a marvelous power for good or evil, the silent, unconscious, unseen influence of his life. This is simply the constant radiation of what man really is, not what he pretends to be, unquote. Now, the book goes on to talk about the power of paradigm, the power of perception, how you can shift perception, how you can work on the personality characteristics, the secondary characteristics, the secondary greatness, I guess one could say, and how 
there are differences in perception and the ability to manipulate these differences in perception. Um, a little bit of too long didn't read because I can't really effectively read this as much as I would like to um, in regards to the pictures. Um, what time is it? 2.16. You know what? Maybe we'll keep reading because – no, we're going to stop and take a second here. We're going to stop and take a second before we keep going. And I will explain to you after. I am going to offer a couple of criticisms here before I continue, because otherwise I will forget. I find it duly interesting, duly noted and quite interesting, that specifically this author talks about the last 150 years, essentially the creation of the United States. And how the perception changed to secondary characteristics, the personality characteristics. And I'll tell you what, I have a lot of I have a lot of criticisms about that because in terms of perception, as I'm gonna read this next section for you guys in a few minutes here, the power of paradigm and the essentially the power of perception here that I find it interesting that where have been the indigenous over the last 150 years we talk about character morale and having these basic fundamental characters characteristics yet unfortunately in the creation of the United States of America um, they sought freedom the hell away from the British government who was doing more and more taxation and I had actually found I've got to try and go back and found find it again because there was a potential video actually you know what I might just go take and see if I can find it while we have our next break on TikTok because if I can find it again I would love to share it. it it's got some food for thought to put it nicely that everybody thought that the Americans were getting mad over taxation, but it was a little bit more than that. So the, myself personally, I'll have to try and dig a little deeper if I can find that video again. But the amount of land grabbing they did, murder they did, um, putting indigenous people on reserves, not letting them engage in commerce like everybody else. You look at um, the Trail of Tears where that's all it took was three indigenous band members to completely screw over their entire community. They went to the United States government, signed a nice fancy little document saying that, oh, they could have it so long as this, this community gets a little bit of pennies in exchange. And just like that, that's all the government needed was a couple of signatures from the weak link in order to commit the atrocities that they did, kick everybody off of the land that was theirs and moved them to a place in a different state, essentially. I mean, I'm not sure exactly if it was a different state, but I know it was quite, quite far away. You can Google the, you can Google the information. I'm not going to bother here. Um, but if you're interested in looking up the Trail of Tears, I would suggest you do so. There's some quite interesting documentaries and things on it, which are really disturbing, to be honest. 
that they lost one-third of their community members on the way there, including men, women, and children, because they either starved or succumbed to the elements. The good, the, the good silver lining on this story is that the community members that sold out the rest of the entire um, community did end up getting buried, to put it nicely, because people found out what happened, and they, they buried them. But um, it's really unfortunate that this is the perception that the government takes is that all it takes is a de facto signature in order to make things happen. Um, and you can feel free to agree to disagree or argue your points all you want. Um, I prefer to take a central stance, but I can comprehend and understand that they did build um, new beginnings for a lot of people. There were a lot of ups just as there were a lot of downs. However, that does not disregard that there were a lot of things that happened on the other side as well. And again, I'm not going to say that there wasn't things that happened to settlers or things that weren't committed in, in atrocious ways by communities that were being forced off their land. I'm not going to say that bad things didn't happen. Um, it was a really messed up situation all around. But it kind of makes me chuckle that we're going to sit here and talk about character, yet they did some of the most uncharacteristically bad, brutish things, just totally bastardly things. And yet there they are. Anyway, that's my number one criticism with that. Um, but in terms of character ethics, being chained for personality ethics shortly after World War One. I hit Google today, and when did Eddie Bernays start his career? Ooh, there it goes. So, Eddie Bernays, as we've talked about him on this previous show, couple of times actually if you don't know who he is and you're listening to this show and you still haven't googled this man shame on you that's all I'm going to say if you're a listener of this show and you don't know who he is and haven't at least taken a brief look into the things that he's done and looks into perception and those kinds of things again like turn off the damn show because shame on you go you know I'm not I'm just going to say like don't don't turn off the show I love you but you should go google this so he was born in 1891 in Vienna, Austria. His family had immigrated to the United States a, a year later. We're just going to go to thoughtco.com and read this because he is, oh, and by the way, spoiler alert, he is the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And he made a profession out of shaping public opinion. He was the father of public relations and propaganda. Okay. Edward Bernays is an American business consultant who is widely regarded as having the modern profession of public relations with his groundbreaking campaigns in the 1920s. FYI, he started his career in 1918 or no sorry 19 hold on because i know it's when did world war one end the 
war that ended 1918, November 11th, 1918. It was 1919 that he started his professional career of shaping public opinion. His first biggest piece was in 1920, The Torches of Freedom, I think. Hold on here. Okay, his campaign started in 1920. Bernays attained clients among major corporations and became known for boosting their business by causing changes in public opinion. Advertising was already commonplace by the early 20th century. But what Bernays did with his campaigns was significantly different as he didn't openly seek to promote a particular product the way a typical campaign would. Instead, he was, when, he hired, when hired by a company, Bernays would set out to change the opinions of the general public, creating demand which would indirectly boost the fortunes of a particular product. Some of Bernays' public relation campaigns failed, but some were so successful that he was able to create a thriving business. And making no secret of his family relation to Sigmund Freud, he was the nephew of the pioneering psychoanalyst. psychoanalyst. His work had the veneer of scientific respectability. Bernays was often portrayed as the father of propaganda, a title he did not mind. He maintained that propaganda was laudable and necessary component of democratic government. In other words, mind control was necessary to rule the people. His early career, his position at the Medical Review of Reviews led to his first foray into public relations. He heard that an actor wanted to produce a play that was controversial as it dealt with the subject of venereal disease. Bernays offered to help and essentially turned turned the play into a cause and a success by creating what he called the Sociological Fund Committee which enlisted notable citizens to praise the play. After the first experience, Bernays began working as a press agent which, and built a thriving business. So that's all he had to do is get people with prestige to compliment the play, the play praise the play. And just like that, people that looked up to those people who had influence, suddenly they were looking at this play and were trying to follow the same opinions. This is the whole switch between character ethic to personality ethic and getting the successful people to start using external factors just like that. During World War I, he was rejected for military service due to his poor vision, but he offered his public relations services to the U.S. government. When he joined the government's committee of public information, he enlisted in American companies doing business overseas to distribute literature about America's reason for entering the war. You know, isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame when you look at this? It's just like this man became such an influence and a staple in U.S. marketing. And if they would have just let him go to war, 
he probably would have had a lot of perception changes if he didn't die, although there's a good chance he could have died. And, like, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this bullshit that we're having in the U.S. right now. Like, you know, it's just little things that you think about that. Like, if Hitler would have got into art school, we wouldn't have had, the, like, the, the, the attempt at the Third Reich. If this would have actually gone to war, his perceptions could have been changed. He could have been, like, a little bit more humanely, or he could have been driven nuts to the point that, like, he wouldn't have been taken seriously, or he could have died. Good chance he would have died, and then we wouldn't be dealing with this U.S. stuff. No, instead, the army was picky back then, and if you didn't have a good enough eyesight, you couldn't be, and now they're just letting anybody in through the door. Like, we, we, is it, not trying to defend the military, because there's a lot of things that I could complain about when in terms of that, not necessarily the bravery from men and women literally going to die to protect the people that they love. It's a matter of this entire thing is a sham, and you're sending these poor peons who don't know any better off to go fight, protect, die, when half of them aren't even protecting anything other than the big corporate pockets, and they've been sold lie to. And a lot of them find out afterward that it's all a bunch of bullshit, and they get really, really mad. Spoken to way too many veterans who went and did the thing, and then after they were thrown away by their government, realized that, oh, hey, this, this is, I, I was lied to. And I can't help but feel absolutely gutted and disgusted for these people that they had the right thing to a degree that they were thinking that they were fighting evil, that they were going to go eliminate what was going to be causing problems for themselves and others, but instead it was a perception that was created of which they were duped into thinking. Like this is that whole personality versus character ethic. That that whole thing is just personality ethic, like, which is what they were trying to go in on. It's just things like that. Anyway, back to reading this Co article. After the end of the war, Bernays traveled to Paris as part of a government public relations team at the Paris Peace Conference. Peace Conference. Hmm. The trip went badly for Bernays, who found himself in conflict with other officials. Despite that, he came away having learned a valuable lesson, which was that wartime work challenging public opinion on a grand scale could have civilian applications. Following the war, Bernays continued in public relations business, seeking out major clients. An early triumph was a project for President Calvin Coolidge, Coolidge? Coolidge, who projected a stern and humorless image. Bernays arranged for performers, including Al Jolson, to visit Coolidge at the White House. Coolidge was portrayed in the press as having fun, and weeks later he won the election of 1924. Bernays, of course, took credit for changing the public's perception of Coolidge. One of the most famous Bernays campaigns was while working for the American Tobacco Company in the late 1920s. Smoking had caught on among American women in the years following World War I, but the habit carried a stigma 
and only a fraction of Americans found it acceptable for women to smoke, especially in the public. We're going to be getting into feminine and feminism and stuff at some point, I think, as well, because I've been having some interesting conversations with men and women regarding the control of men having over women, because personally, I'm a proponent of equality in most areas. Men and women are obviously born different for a reason. They have different brains, different processes and things, and that's just the way it is. I don't think one should be higher than the other. I think each one of them can have equal opportunity, uh, equity, I guess one could say, um, in terms of Everything they do outside of, like, bearing children and feeding babies with your whole ass body. Um, But outside of that, for the most part, men can do what women can do and women can do what men can do for the most part. We're we're not entirely equal, but we should have, for the most part, equal opportunity. But that's another conversation that I'm going to have at another time when I do a little more research. I would love to bring some informed opinion into the topic because I'm most certainly not going to be a man hater and I am most certainly not going to be a woman hater. I feel if we could get on the level of being able to complement each other the way that those things need to be had, I feel like society could really go far. But instead, we have the Hegelian dialectic of women and men at each other's throats and in this article that's clearly true that there's acceptability for women and different things different levels of standards and stuff for men which is disappointing in my opinion having be being a woman in this now day and age where i have for the most part um equal opportunity in most things i just find it really interesting anyway that's another small tangent we're going to read continuing on so we just left off um about talking about the tobacco company in the late 1920s where it's acceptable for women to not acceptable for women to smoke especially in public okay bernays began by spreading the idea through various means that smoking was an alternative to candy and desserts and that tobacco helped people lose weight so no actual scientific claim, but change in perception. He followed that up in 1929 with something more audacious, spreading the idea that cigarettes meant freedom. Bernays had gotten the idea from consulting with a New York psychoanalyst who happened to be a discipline or sorry, disciple of his uncle, Dr. Freud. Bernays was informed that women of the late 1920s were seeking and smoking represented that freedom. To find a way to convey that concept to the public, Bernays hit up the stunt of having young women smoke cigarettes while strolling in the annual Easter Sunday parade on Fifth Avenue in New York City. We're going to read the rest of this section here, and then we're going to take another commercial break. Okay. The event was carefully organized and essentially scripted. 
Debutantes were recruited to be the smokers, and they were carefully positioned near particular landmarks, such as St. Patrick's Cathedral. Bernays even arranged for a photographer to shoot images just in case any newspaper photographer missed the shot. The next day, New York Times published a story on the annual Easter celebrations and a sub-headline on page one read, Group of girls puff at cigarettes as a gesture of freedom. The article noted about a dozen young women strolled back and forth near St. Patrick's Cathedral, ostentatiously smoking cigarettes. When interviewed, the women said the cigarettes were torches of freedom, and they were lighting the way to the day when women would smoke on the streets as casually as men. <clears throat> the tobacco company was happy as the results as sales to women accelerated. A wildly successful campaign was devised by Bernays for a longtime client, Procter & Gamble, for its ivory soap brand. Bernays devised a way of making children like soap by initiating soap carving contests. Children and adults, too, were encouraged to whittle bars of ivory, and the contest became a national fad. A newspaper article in 1929 about the company's fifth annual soap sculpture contest mentioned that 1675 in prize money was being awarded, and many contestants were adults and even professional artists. The contest continued for decades and instructions for soap sculpture are still part of Procter and Gamble promotions so prior to that because I'm not going to go find another article for that <clears throat> mothers were having a hard time with getting their children to take baths because the soaps were harsh and quite often these children would get soap in their eyes and they didn't want to take baths so in order to increase public perception of this soap and make children like taking baths and using the soap, as well as increasing the sales, this is the gig that Eddie Bernays did for the people. Okay, I need a drink of water, and uh, I will be right back. So we're going to take a mini for a commercial break, and we'll be right back. Did you know that every time you swipe your debit card, those behind-the-scenes transaction fees make the big banks even richer? In 2016 alone, these fees added up to $60 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B. Well, what if there was a way to have the convenience of a debit card, but reroute those fees from the banksters to organizations actually doing good in the world? Organizations that protect the environment or feed hungry children? What if your swipes could literally change the world? Well, Groundswell SPC has found a way to do just that. We've designed a Visa debit card program that shares transaction fees with your favorite cause. Groundswell partners with nonprofit organizations that promote the card to their supporters. Their supporters then use the card to power the mission of the nonprofit. It's a win-win-win for everyone, except the big banks, of course. 
Groundswell is about to launch its first cards into market, and we're inviting you to be part of this movement as an investor in the company. Go to WeFunder.com backslash Groundswell card to learn more. Set up a free WeFunder account and invest in Groundswell today and get your money on mission. Have you looked at the price of Bitcoin lately? Cryptocurrencies are the hottest financial investment right now. Well, what if you can get free Bitcoin fractions by having an app on your phone or PC? Introducing Lolly, a website that rewards you with free Bitcoin pieces with your online purchases. You purchase from one of thousands of companies like Chewy, Old Navy, Groupon, and others. You get a percent of your purchase back in Bitcoin. Use my link on freedomizerradio.live or find me on Facebook for your special link to get started. Lolly, earn free Bitcoin while you shop. Hello, everyone. I want to introduce you to our friends at Marty.com. At Marty, you can stock up on all your pantry items and other household items for way, way cheaper than traditional grocery stores. I like that most of the items are organic. Also, I really dig their one-cent deal of the day. It changes every single day. I recently snagged a 10-ounce bag of dog treats for Chewbacca for a penny. Normally, they sell on their site for $7.99. With the upcoming food shortages, this is my favorite place to stock up on canned goods. If you live in the mountain or Pacific time zones, you need to get with Marty.com. M-A-R-T-I-E.com. Look for our link on our FreedomizerRadio.com website and get a $10 free just because I told you to go there. Marty.com. Great deals, good feels. Freaks, outsiders, weirdos, the wallflowers, oddball loser, fish out of water, speak up, talk quieter. We are different. There's no arguing. It's a fact. A patchwork of flaws, we grow and adapt. We're funky, unconventional. See life through kaleidoscope eyes. In a field full of clovers, with our four leaves, we bask in blue skies. Flaws are natural. Our imperfections, our weaknesses, our scars. There is a misfit in all of us. We just have to be brave enough to embrace who we are. Holy freaking crap, I was just talking to myself this whole time. Wow, how embarrassing. Apologies, guys. I'm just going to start from the beginning again because I did not realize for the last, like, four minutes I was not even, not even, I was on mute. I quit. I'm done. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so this is Sam, host of uh, Open World, formerly known as Against the Grain. And prior to, we're going to go over this again, um, prior to the commercial break, um, we were going over sections of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons and per- Personal Change by Stephen R. Covey with a PH. We went over um, character ethics and personality ethics 
And we started going over primary and secondary greatness, and we shifted off a little bit into a detour regarding Eddie Bernays because Eddie Bernays started his work at the end of World War One. Um, well, he did start it a little bit beforehand, but his work really started to take off um, towards the end of World War One, and especially towards the end of the 1920s. And let me read you. This last little bit of this Thought Co. article. Uh, Legacy. Bernays had been widely regarded as a pioneer in the field of public relations, and many of his techniques have become commonplace. For instance, the Bernays, pra- the Bernays practice of forming interest groups, interest groups, um, I just lost my spot. Hold in here. To advocate for something is reflected daily in the commentators on cable television who represent interest groups and think tanks that seem to exist to confer respectability. Often speaking out of retirement, Bernays, who lived to the age of 103 and died in 1995, was often critical of those who seemed to be his heirs. He told the New York Times in an interview conducted in honor on his 100th birthday that any dope, any nitwit, any idiot can call him or herself a public relations practitioner. However, he said he would be happy to call the father of public relations when the field is taken seriously, like law or architecture. As you can see, this guy was extremely conceited, and he also wrote and published books Um, a book here called Crystallizing Public Opinion, 1923, and Propaganda, 1928. Um, His books were influential, and generations of public relations professionals have referred to them. Bernays, however, came in for criticism. He was denounced by the magazine editor and publisher as the young Machiavelli of our time, and he often criticized, he was often criticized for operating in deceptive ways. So that's interesting. So we're going to go back to reading a little bit here. And I think Rod is listening and I haven't talked to him in a little while. So I would love to hear his thoughts on things. And if he has anything other he would love to share, I would love to hear it. Uh, We're not going to get through this whole chapter today. That's going to take a little while. Maybe we'll do it part two. Um, Next week, maybe. Maybe. We will see. I'm not going to promise anything just because if I am on the tractor, I will be on the tractor and things get quite loud there. And I would not, I don't really, I can't really be reading and doing radio show while I'm operating a tractor at the same time. That's not how it works. Um, Just because I have to be paying attention. Even if I'm just kind of like sitting, waiting for a little while, because it's not the sitting and waiting that's the problem. It's when you actually got to get going. I have to put things down and get moving. And on top of that, I'm yelling into the phone the whole time. So I will keep you guys updated. Um, Okay. The power of a paradigm. The seven habits of highly effective people embody many of the fundamental principles of human effectiveness. These habits are basic, they are primary. They represent the internalization of correct principles upon which enduring happiness and success are based. 
But before we can really understand these seven habits, we need to understand our own paradigms and how to make a paradigm shift. So again, I'm just reading the intro to this book. But if you want to get your hands on this book, you can head over to Amazon or anything like that. Again, this book is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change by Stephen R. Covey, C-O-B-E-Y, and then it's Stephen with a P-H. <clears throat> Try in here. Um, both the character ethic and personality ethics are examples of social paradigms. The word paradigm comes from the Greek comes from Greek. It was originally a scientific term and is more commonly used today to mean a model, theory, perception, assumption, or frame of reference. In the more general sense, it's the way we see the world, not in terms of our visual sense of sight, but in terms of perceiving, understanding, and interpreting. For our purposes, a simple way to understand paradigms is to see them as maps. We all know that the map is not the territory. A map is simply an explanation of certain as paradigm is. It is a theory, an explanation, or a model of something else. Suppose you wanted to arrive at a specific location in central Chicago. A street map of the city would be a great help to you in reaching your destination. But suppose you were given the wrong map. Through a printing error, the map labeled Chicago was actually a map of Detroit. Can you imagine the frustration, the ineffectiveness of trying to reach your destination? You might work on your behavior. You could try harder, <clears throat> be more diligent, double your speed. But your efforts would only succeed in getting you to the wrong place faster. You might work on your attitude. You could think more positively, but you wouldn't get to the right place. But perhaps you wouldn't care. Your attitude would be so positive you'd be happy wherever you are. The point is you'd still be lost. The fundamental problem has nothing to do with your behavior or attitude. It has everything to do with having a wrong map. If you have the right map of Chicago, then that diligence becomes important. And when you encounter frustrating obstacles along the way, then the attitude makes a real difference. But the first and foremost important requirement is the accuracy of the map. Each of us have many, many maps in our head which can be divided into two main categories, maps of the way things are or realities and maps of the way things should be or values. We interpret realities, the maps of the way things, or sorry, we interpret everything we experience through these mental maps. We seldom question their accuracy. We're usually even unaware that we have them. We simply assume the way we see things is the way they really are or the way they should be. And our attitudes and behaviors grow out of these assumptions. The way we see things is the source of the way we think and the way we act. Before going into further, any further, I invite you to have an intellectual and an emotional experience. Okay, so in this book, I'm just going to give a TLDR because you guys don't have the pictures, and I did not take the opportunity to upload them. But he talks about 
there's a picture. It's like a scribble picture of a young woman looking away. Okay, it's a scribble picture of a young woman with the hair covering a necklace and she's looking away. And there's another scribble picture, just kind of a quick sketch picture of what looks to be like an old woman. Got a big nose, she's got a head covering, a big bushy scarf around her shoulders. And like I said, this is just kind of a quick scribble picture. But he did an experiment where he showed a classroom a certain percentage of the classroom, the picture of the young woman. And then he showed a picture of the old woman to a certain percentage of the classroom. And then he showed the picture of both of the women combined in the same picture and was studying the perception of the students. Who saw what? So you can't see these pictures, but I'm going to read this. So there's the old woman and the young woman, and then there's a picture of both of them together. It's the same, the, 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 the third picture is the one with both of them drawn into the same picture. Okay, now look on the picture on page 26 and carefully describe what you see. Do you see a woman? How would, old would she say she is? What does she look like? What is she wearing? And what kind of roles do you see her? You would probably describe the woman in the second picture to be about 25 years old, very lovely, rather fashionable, with a petite nose and a demure, and demure presence. If you are a single man, you might like to take her out. If you are in retailing, you might wanna, you might hire her as a fashion model. But what, what, but if, what if I were to tell you that you're wrong? What if I said this picture is a woman in her 60s or 70s who looks sad and has a huge nose and certainly no model? She's someone you probably help across the street. Who's right? Look at the picture again. Can you see the old woman? If you can't, keep trying. Can you see her big hooked nose, her shawl? If you and I were talking face to face, we could discuss this picture. I could describe what you see to me and I could talk, you, talk to you what I see. You would continue to communicate until you clearly showed me what you see in the picture and I clearly showed you what I see. Because we can't do that, turn to page 45 and study the picture there. And then look at this picture again. Can you see the old woman now? So page 45 is the picture of the old woman. Page 26 is the picture of the young woman. It's important that you see her before you continue reading. I first encountered this exercise many years ago at the Harvard Business School. The instructor was using it to demonstrate clearly and eloquently that two people can see the same thing, disagree, and yet both be right. It's not logical, it's psychological. He brought into the room a stack of large cards, half of which had the image of the young woman you saw on page 25, and the other half of which had the image of the old woman on page 45. He passed them out to the class, the picture of the young woman, to one side of the room and the picture of the old woman to the other. He asked us to look at the cards, concentrate on them for about 10 seconds, and then pass them back in. He then projected upon the screen a picture you saw on page 26, combining both images and asked the class to describe what they saw. Almost every person in the class who had seen the, the young woman's image on a card saw the young woman in the picture. And almost every person who had seen the old woman's image on a card saw an old woman in the picture. 
The professor then asked one student to explain what he saw to a student on the opposite side of the room. As they talked back and forth, the communication problems flared up. What do you mean, old lady? She couldn't be more than 20 or 22 years old. Oh, come on. You have to be joking. She's 70. Could be pushing 80. What's the matter with you? Are you blind? This lady is young, good-looking. I'd like to take her out. She's lovely. Lovely? She's an old hag. The arguments went back and forth, each person sure of and adamant in his or her perception. All of this occurred in spite of one exceedingly important advantage that the student had. Most of them knew the early, sorry, most of them knew early in the demonstration that another point of view did in fact exist, something many of us would never admit. Nevertheless, at first, only a few students really tried to see the picture from another frame of reference. After a period of futile communication, one student went up to the screen and pointed to a line in the drawing. There is the young woman's necklace. And the other one said, no, that is the old woman's mouth. Gradually, they, became to, they began to calmly discuss specific points of difference. And finally, one student, then another, experienced sudden recognition when the images of both came into focus. Through continued calm, respectful, and specific communication, each of us in the room was finally able to see the other point of view. But when we looked away and then back, most of us would immediately see the image we had been conditioned to see in the 10-second period of time. I frequently use this perception demonstration in working with people and organizations because it yields so many deep insights into both personal and interpersonal effectiveness. It shows, first of all, how powerfully conditioning, sorry, how powerfully conditioning affects our perceptions, our paradigms. If 10 seconds have had have that kind of impact on the way we see things, what about the conditioning of a lifetime? The influences in our lives, family, school, church, work environment, friends, associates, and current social paradigms, such as the personality ethic, all have made their silent, unconscious impact on us and helped shape our frame of reference, our paradigms, and our maps. It shows us that these paradigms are the source of our attitudes and behaviors. We cannot act with integrity outside of them. We simply cannot maintain wholeness if we talk and walk differently than what we see. If you are among the 90% who typically see the young woman in the composite picture when conditioned to do so, you undoubtedly found it difficult to think in terms of having to help her across the street. Both your attitude about her and your behavior toward her could be congruent with the way you saw her. This brings into focus one of the basic flaws of the personality ethic. Try to change outward attitudes and behaviors does very little in the long run if we fail to examine the basic paradigms by which those attitudes and behaviors flow. This perception demonstrates, also shows how powerfully our paradigms affect the way we interact with other people. 
as clearly and as objectively as we think we see things, we begin to realize that others see them differently from their own apparently equally clear and objective point of view. Where we stand depends on where we sit, quote, end quote. Each of us tends to think we see things as they are, that they are objective, but this is not the case. We see the world not as it is, as we are, or as we are conditioned to see it. When we open our mouths to describe what we see, we are in effect describing ourselves, our perceptions, our paradigms. When other people disagree with us, we immediately think something is wrong with them. But as the demonstration shows, sincere, clear-headed people see things differently, even looking through the unique lens of experience. This does not mean that there are no facts. In the demonstration, two individuals who initially have been influenced by different conditioning pictures look at the third picture differently. They are now both looking at the same identical facts, black lines and white spaces, and they would both acknowledge these facts. But each person's interpretation of these facts represent prior experiences, and the facts have no meaning whatsoever apart from interpretation. The more aware we are of our basic paradigms, maps, or assumptions, and the extent to which we have been influenced by our experience, the more we can take responsibility for those paradigms, examine them, test them against reality, listen to others, and be open to their perceptions, thereby getting a larger picture and a far more objective view. And if you know anything about influence, persuasion at all that is num that is number the number one way to gain rapport with an individual and to build trust because we operate from our perceptions only and as much as we would like to think you know we we can see things from another side this is where when you watch things like Judge Judy or you have these court cases or things that happen along those terms, there is no meeting in the minds, which is creating conflict. And they need somebody else to mitigate and make a decision on behalf of, according to the law, because there was no meeting of the minds. There was two different perceptions of the contract of which they engaged in, and obviously they didn't reach or something changed or somebody's perception of what happened has changed. So therefore, they need to try to get to the facts as much as possible and make a determination based on that. When we've already gone over in the past, Facts versus evidence. We can even go even farther into that with facts versus evidence. You need to look at the, um, anyway, we're going to take another quickie commercial break here. And, uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about this fun stuff. And then we're going to have Rod on because I'm sure he's got a few things to say. So we will be right back after this commercial break. And this time I will not forget to turn off my mute. Freaks, outsiders, weirdos, the wallflowers, 
Oddball loser, fish out of water. Speak up. Talk quieter. We are different. There's no arguing. It's a fact. A patchwork of flaws, we grow and adapt. We're funky, unconventional. See life through kaleidoscope eyes. In a field full of clovers, with our four leaves, we bask in blue skies. Flaws are natural. Our imperfections, our weaknesses, our scars. There is a misfit in all of us. We just have to be brave enough to embrace who we are. Most people say they hate wearing shoes and would go barefoot if they knew they were allowed. People say it all the time on their social medias. But they are worried that someone will say something to them. So everyone wears the cheapest flip-flops with the least amount of fabric on them. Most people do not even know that it's completely 100% legal to go barefoot into a store. Most people think that driving barefoot is illegal but it isn't. Driving barefoot actually is safer than wearing most shoes. Going outside barefoot for a walk is one of the healthiest things you could do, but most people are afraid someone will say so. Or they quote the myths and the rumors that their grandma told them years ago. The fact is, there are no laws against driving a car, going to a store, or eating in a restaurant barefoot. So don't give in to bad fashion, hurt heels, or a broken flip-flop. For more information, please check out barefootislegal.org or find us on your favorite social media. Food waste is one of the most easily solvable problems, literally the low-hanging fruit of environmentalism. Pardon the pun, it's my job. About 20% of all produce never makes it off the farm. It's because they just look a little funny, a little weird, but when you cut into it, it's perfectly good food. It's just a total shame. It's totally good stuff. We buy ugly produce directly from farms that often would go to waste because supermarkets won't buy it because of how it looks, and we deliver it to people's doors. This isn't that ugly at all. Like, that's the most common first box, like, complaint we get. We change that. We educate people. We show them how amazing these fruits and vegetables are. Have food delivered to your house. Box of produce every week. And it's more affordable. At a very reasonable price. Cheaper than the grocery store. I spend a lot less time in grocery stores. It's an adventure every time that you open your box. High quality produce. There's nothing wrong with the produce. And they taste exactly the same, if not better. Save those fruits and vegetables that get wasted every year. And it's delivered to your door, like, but what you, why wouldn't you do? Why wouldn't you do? Please go to our website, freedomizerradio.live, and sign up for Imperfect Foods today. Use our promo code and get money off your first order. Go ahead and get some organic and all-natural meats, dairy, snacks, breads, and non-GMO produce. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you're tuning in from, my fellow Liberty Lovers. This is Amber S. from Living with Freedom Ministries, reminding you to tune in on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific Time, for the Living with Freedom show, where we'll embrace what living with freedom can look like physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and in everyday life. That's 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, here on Freedomizer Radio.
Hello, everybody. This is Sam, host of Open World, formerly known as Against the Green. So we spent the better half of our discussion going over information in this book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons and Personal Change by Stephen R. Covey. Stephen with a P-H, Covey, C-O-V-E-Y. So I don't know if I'm talking about that or pronouncing that correctly. But the first bit we talked about character ethic versus personality ethic, how character ethic has seemed to take a nosedive over personality ethic, specifically starting in uh, shortly after World War I. We've gone over primary and secondary greatness and how the primary needs to be there in order for the secondary to truly arise and be sustainable. And then we talked a little bit about Eddie Bernays and his work as the um, – the um, father of public relations from ThoughtCo. There's an article here, Edward Bernays, father of public relations and propaganda from ThoughtCo.com. And then we further followed up with the power of paradigm, the perception, change in perception, and how shifting that um, can really, really make a difference. Um, I want to read to you, because I think I might have gotten mixed up, because I know we've had Pixie on a couple times. I always get mixed up, fact versus evidence, and he's talked about it a few times, and I always get them mixed up. But he made a post the other day. Um, the three questions a, quote, reasonable man, unquote, would ask any stranger attempting to obtain something from him. Number one, who are you? Number two, what do you want from me? Number three, why do you think I owe it to you? Okay, get ready, because here's how to utilize this concept when the stranger is an ignorant, egotistical individual who somehow managed to obtain a title related to government office. Title in government and office all in quotes. Who are you? I have literally never heard of an alleged quote-unquote office holder give their name without including some form of title when answering this question. Their answer almost inevitably will be something along the lines of Officer Smith, Clerk Jones, Secretary Doe, Councilman Martin, Dog Catcher East, etc., etc., etc. Now, mind you, the following is nothing more true or false than simply my opinion, but it seems to me as though the purpose for mentioning a title instead of their name is almost solely done for the purpose of limiting their liability. And that's something we've talked about in the past. But here's something I always consider. If a man says I owe money, performance, obligation, whatever, but he won't tell me who he is, then he probably won't say I owe him. When he uses a title, he's attempting to limit his personal liability. By claiming I owe his principal, he's literally only acting as an agent of that principal. If I, a reasonable man, already know who his principal is and that such principal cannot prove any liability on my part to provide such principal any form of money, performance, or obligation, then I can immediately move to create agreement with the agent. Number two, what do you want from me? If the stranger answered your first question with a title, then you already know they don't want anything from you other than for you to provide their principal some money, performance, or obligations that they, the agent, can receive some reward from their principal. 
But let's take a whole moment, take a moment to here to sidestep the whole principal and agent idea. The ultimate point of all the typing I'm doing is to create this post is a concept of agreement over argument. So to that end, let's consider this. The answer to the first question is, I'm Bob Smith, your neighbor. The answer to the second question is, your dog chewed a hole in my garage door, and I'd like you to buy me a new door and install it. Okay, well, as a reasonable man, maybe I decide the stranger's request is also reasonable. So I buy the garage door and install it for him. Do I need to ask the third question at this point? No. Does Bob need to prove that I owe him anything? No. Does the quote-unquote public courts, lawyers, etc., need to get involved utilizing public funds or creating public debt? No. Why? Because we, as reasonable men, came to an agreement without any dispute to create a just, justiciable controversy. Number three, why do I owe it to you? Okay, back to the entitled agent scenario. The answer will almost always be some form of, well, you owe me my principal. This is where it gets tricky because I've never met an agent who is intelligent enough to understand logic. Yet the fact remains we are the people we the sorry we the people are the principal the reason i say this is tricky part is because we generally speaking have no idea how to behave like kings we can write out paperwork all day long but the general principle is this if the cook paid the servant to the king sorry if the cook paid servant to the king has never actually seen the king, and the king walks into the kitchen asking for apples, then why the hell would the cook give a stranger the king's apples? The cook knows one thing. He, if he gives some moron an apple that belongs to the king, he could lose not only his job, but his life. The only way the cook is going to give the stranger an apple is if he can reasonably determine from the stranger's actions that this stranger is indeed the king. Anyways, I've spent too much time typing this post, but it took me almost an hour to do so. But again, let me reiterate, learn to create agreement because the only way that the agent can obtain any value for himself is if you permit an argument with this perceived principle. That's how a debt-based society, society functions. And that is on his profile is Johnny Faraday. You can check that out um, because at this current time, he is accepting friend requests. Um, I don't know how long that will be for, but for the time being, he is accepting some friend requests. Just don't show up and try and argue and be a fool because I'll tell you what, he loves to engage in discussion and agree to disagree, but he is not somebody that you want to sit there and argue over, over silly, total nonsense. It makes absolutely no sense. But, um, yeah. So I wanted to read that to you guys because I feel like having the discussion that we just had reading this book talking about perceptions and um, how the agent is perceiving to engage in argument in order to get dominion over you. 
versus you working in agreement or trying to create agreement. And if there is no agreement, then there is nothing that you owe them. They need to provide proof that you owe them. And if they have nothing, you owe them nothing. And we've had those discussions a few times on this channel. Okay, so we have about an hour and 13 minutes left here. I'm going to bring Rod on because I'm sure he's going to want to chit-chat. Um, and I'm, he might want to go through another meditation with us. So I'll tell you what, I would love to have one today, just with everything that's been going on this last little while. So oh, if this could load. Rod, are you there? Hello? Uh-oh. We can't hear him. Maybe I'll message him quick. Mm-hmm. Okay, give me one second. I'm gonna. I'm going to message him. Choo 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 choo. If I can find his profile. Mm-hmm. Am I not even being heard? Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm just talking to myself this whole time, in which case, that's okay. I've learned a lot of things today and reiterated a lot of things. Okay, Uh, Rod, I'm going to put it back on mute again here if you're not able to um, chat. If you are, let me know through messenger if not that's totally okay um okay i'm not sure what's going on or why it's doing that weird stuff but okay we'll try again in a bit actually you know what just give me one second here guys I'm not sure what's going on, but that's okay. Well, then we will continue reading a little bit more of this book here. And the power of paradigm shift. Is that where we left off? Yes. We're going to read this next section here. So next section, power of paradigm shift. Perhaps the most important insight to be gained from the perception demonstration in the arena, or sorry, the area of paradigm shifting, what I might call the aha experience when someone finally sees the composite picture in another way. The more bound a person is by the initial perception, the more powerful the aha experience is. It's as though a light were suddenly turned on inside. The term paradigm shift was introduced by Thomas Kuhn in his highly influential landmark book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Kuhn shows how almost every significant breakthrough in the field of scientific endeavor is first a break with tradition, with old ways of thinking and old paradigms. For 
Ptolemy, the great Egyptian astronomer, so I don't know if I pronounced that right, but we're going to go with it. The Earth was the center of the universe, but Cornipicus, Cornic, Copernicus, there we go, Copernicus, Cornicius, I don't know, created a paradigm shift and a great deal of resistance and persecution as well by placing the sun at the center. Suddenly, everything took on a different interpretation. The Newtonian model of physics was a clockwork paradigm and is still the basis of modern engineering, but it was partial incomplete. The scientific world was revolutionized by the Einsteinian paradigm and and relativity paradigm, which had much higher predictive and explanatory value. Until the germ theory was developed, a high percentage of women and children died during childbirth, and no one could understand why. In military skirmishes, more men were dying from small wounds and diseases than the major traumas on the front lines. But soon after the germ theory was developed, a whole new paradigm, a better, improved way of understanding what was happening made dramatic significant medical improvement possible. The United States today is the fruit of a paradigm shift. The traditional concept of government for centuries had been monarchy, the divine right of kings. Then a different paradigm was developed, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The constitutional democracy was born, unleashing tremendous human energy and ingenuity, and creating a standard of living, of freedom and liberty, of influence and hope unequaled in the history of the world. Not all paradigm shifts are in positive directions. As we have observed, the shift from the character ethic to the personality ethic has drawn us away from the very roots that nourish true success and happiness. But whether they shift us in positive or negative directions, whether they are instantaneous or developmental, paradigm shifts move us away from one way of seeing the world to another. And those shifts create powerful change. Are paradigms correct or incorrect? Are the sources of our attitudes and behaviors and ultimately our relationships with others? I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly and reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then suddenly, a man with his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing, and yet the man sitting next to me did nothing to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what felt With what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more? 
The man lifted his gaze as if to come to consciousness and of the situation for the first time and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't really know how to handle it either. Can you imagine what I felt in that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, I behaved differently. Notice how he said that. Before I continue, I saw, like he, I thought, I felt, and I behaved differently. This is the Trinity, and this is what we get in, we get into here often on this radio show. If this is your first time tuning in, this is what we get into quite a bit. Um, the Trinity. So I think, as I feel, so I behave. So as I do, you know what I mean? Think, feel, do. As I think, so I feel, so I do. Um, you have to change the way you think. When you change the way you think, then it changes the way you feel, and then it changes the way you act. And when you act, you manifest those issues of how you think and feel into reality. This is why whenever you have a group of conspirators, the one who actually commits the action gets heavier sentencing than the ones who just thought it out. You notice how the people at the top almost never, almost never get in much, as much trouble as the ones who actually follow through on the action? There's a reason for that. Because they manifest it into reality, which then subjects everybody else to that reality. It brings their perception into a different paradigm. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with the man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. Many people experience a similar fundamental shift in thinking when they face a life-threatening crisis and suddenly see their priorities in a different light or when they suddenly step into a new role, such as that of a husband or wife, parent or grandparent, manager or leader. We could spend weeks, months, or even years laboring with the personality ethic, trying to change our attitudes and behaviors, and not even begin to approach the phenomenon of change that occurs spontaneously when we see things differently. It becomes obvious that if we want to make relatively minor changes in our lives, we can perhaps appropriately focus on our attitudes and behaviors. But if we want to make significant quantum change, we need to work on our basic paradigms. In the words of Thoreau, for, quote, for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there is one striking at the root, end quote. We can only achieve quantum improvements in our lives as we quit hacking at the leaves of attitude and behavior and get to the work on the root, the paradigms for which our attitudes and behaviors flow. Alrighty, guys, we're going to take another quickie break and then we'll come back and read a little bit more because that I'm going to partially disagree with, although I can see where he's coming from because that's also relying on the external. Where is it coming from from the external versus working on the internal? So I can definitely agree to a degree there. But at the same time, I'm also putting in my own flavor 
that if you focus on the external and where these things come from, you're also not encounter you're you're not looking at things like the Akashic records and our ancestors and genetic lining and things like that. That's that's I mean, I guess that could be seen as one and the same thing. Us in them in them and us kind of thing. We are a individualistic expression, individual expression of a collective consciousness. So we're going to take another quick break. And if Rod is listening, I'm going to let you on, man. I want to talk to you. But if you are not at your phone, then we will keep going with reading. Okay, guys, we'll be right back at this commercial break. We talk a lot about the kingdom here, and we talk a lot about what most churches are afraid to talk about or don't even know to talk about, which is what the first century church was really doing. But just talking about it is not enough. We encourage everybody to join us uh, in their local neighborhoods, in their local communities, to find out more about what they can do to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness gather with others who are already starting this road or starting to turn around and do things differently. Join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links or go to preparingyou.com. Join the network there. It's all the same. And we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. They will not be perfect. They don't walk on water. They are not necessarily saints. But they are talking about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And join us on Facebook. Facebook.com, His Holy Church, all one word. Join us there. We'll give you updates so you can start doing some studying and thinking about these things and start looking into these things for yourselves. But it's just not enough to sit and listen or to talk about or to say. You must become a doer of the word. Looking for something different? Looking for something fun? Join Dan every Monday on the Freedomizer Network, 9 to 10.30 Pacific, noon to 1.30 Eastern, for Common Sense with the educated redneck, Dan Ellison. The show about everything and nothing at all. Hey everyone, come check out the Proof Negative Radio Show here on FreedomizerRadio.com Monday through Thursday, 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on the Pacific Coast as we fight the New World Order and rock the health freedom world together. Please check out the Barefoot is Legal Radio Show right here on Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, that is 10.30 a.m. to noon Pacific Time, as we show you all about your barefoot rights and living a barefoot lifestyle. And for more information about the 501c3 nonprofit Barefoot is Legal, please check out barefootislegal.org. Of all the grounding studies, the one that really got our attention is called Electric Grounding Improves Vagal Tone in Preterm Infants. 
In the study, 26 premature babies in an NICU were connected to grounding wires. The heart rates of the grounded infants stabilized, and their vagal tone, a critical measure of infant health, increased by 67% with grounding. The information is provided for general informational purposes only. The contents are not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Ground Therapy Incorporated makes no representations about the efficiency, appropriateness, or suitability of any specific tests, procedures, treatments, services, opinions, healthcare providers, or other information that may be contained in or available through the information provided. Hello, everybody. This is Sam, host of Against the Grain, formerly, or sorry, host of Open World, formerly known as Against the Grain, and we spent the first kind of two hours talking about um, reading from this book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change, Stephen R. Covey. We read a little bit about Eddie Bernays and how he was able to effectively start changing people's perception to do what, you know, the American overlords want people to do. We read a little bit from Pixie, who has been on the show from time to time here, um, about engaging in agreement and creating joinder kind of thing um, with public agents and now I've got my really good friend Rod on. We haven't talked to him in a little while. I've been gone, and I'm sure he's got some fun stuff to share with us. Okay, Rod, what do you got? All right. Yeah, I'm looking at Bernays. And, you know, one thing that strikes me is uh, when, when people do things that we think are evil, uh, generally they think they're doing something good. And, um so there's a bunch of uh, quotes about him. Yeah, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, it is now possible to control and regiment the masses, which, you know, to us is a bad thing. Uh, I don't know what they thought, what they thought the masses were, uh, you know, in the first place, and what they're up to, and what they want to make them into. Um, this is just the tip of the iceberg here. Uh, regiment of the masses according to our will without their knowing it. That's pretty pretty clearly wrong. Uh, in almost mm-hmm. every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking. So in the same sentence here, he's talking about ethics. So his idea of ethics is different from mine. And so I, I wonder what, they, what he thinks ethical is. We are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. These are all the wires which control the public mind. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. If I think about Greece, I think that seems uh, seems quite the opposite of what they would have thought was democratic. Uh, so that this 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 line of thought must have roots, and I don't know what they are. But he must, you know, have followed other people. He, he didn't just go off with all this stuff himself. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an, an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. Yeah, he was sort of at the top of it, so he thought that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Right, those, those are spot underneath it. I think that's uh, I think that's bad. Uh, and speaking of being underneath things, uh, one of the legal principles is uh, parens patriae, which is the Roman for the, uh, 
and invaded England uh, against England's will. So we like to say that uh, the, the basis of the government is, is consent of the governed. When did anyone in the New World uh, consent to uh, to having the, this doctrine of parents patriae and the rest of Roman law be part of be part of our law? You, know, you can't mm-hmm. you can't identify an event or a moment when when we the people consented to that. Uh, and so I, I wrote a public record request to the legislature, I think it was, and and I asked for the public record that reflects the uh, memorialization of you know our, our consent to be governed by the principle of parents patria. And eventually they wrote back, we have no such record. Well, that's interesting. So next mm. time, if I, were ever, if I were ever in court where the, that principle is used, you know, for stealing kids or something, uh, I'd say, look, you know, you've got this piece of law here. That's not legitimate to use that. You better strike that out. That one didn't count. Uh, we need to put to that. I'd like to at least see what they had to say about that. That so, I would like uh, to say about that. Uh, oh, well, I'd, I'd like to see, <laughs> see what the what the what the lawyers would try to try to. Oh, because like what I have to say about that, because like you know, I was always taught in school back when I took like beginner criminology and things that like parens patriae was brought in by the king as a means of taking respond. This is what they told us: taking responsibility for people that society are no longer taking responsibility of. So like children that were orphaned that have no family. Um, elderly people that had no family and nobody wanted to take care of, or like crazy people, their standards for crazy people were quite vast and different than they were now, but the king took responsibility for them and in, in, in turn essentially kind of claimed ownership over them. But it's like, if you're saying that like in the United States, that they, you know, somebody wrote to them and said, hey, where did this come from? And it's like, we don't even really know. It's just like, wait a minute wait a minute, like, okay, I could see that being a thing in Canada, but, like, the fact that it doesn't even exist except for de facto in the United States, and they're still using it as a potential argument, it's like, whoa, like, back up, like, that. whoa, the, the implications of that are next level. Right. Well, the, yes, and, of course, remember, the specific question I asked was uh, the public record that reflects or the memorialization that memorializes that it was the the, the uh, agreement or consent of we the people to use this principle. Uh, so you said your question was where does it come from, which is a broader question, and your idea about yeah. the king. Well, there may be some there may be some public record here about about the king, but that's not what I asked. Let's see, hmm. yeah, we, the, the okay, king, back king is part of <laughs> right. The king is part of what we threw off. You know, he said, okay, no more king. Uh, well, what, you know, and then, then, then all of a sudden the states say, oh, here we are. Uh, we're, we're taking the king's place. What? Wait a minute. Uh, we, you know, what we got is that we'll sit in that title for you. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a whole lot been written to justify that or to oppose it. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but this sounds like it's going to be a research endeavor that we're both going to have to maybe take a peek into because, like, holy smokes, huh? 
Yeah, well, I could start with start with Chat GPT. Sometimes. Oh yeah, Chat GPT. There we go. I love Chat GPT for that reason. It's a good it's a good way to take a peek at what data might be there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I keep cutting you off, so I'm just excited. Keep right. on. Well, I keep I keep not I keep not having anything to say because I run out of things to say. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, there was a, okay. a lawyer, right? A, a lawyer of 35 years experience um, who retired and decided to read the Constitution very carefully, and he was surprised what he found. So he started a second career. Uh, that he says, for example, he doesn't quite put it this way, but an honest document always always calls the same thing by the same name. And mm-hmm. if you look, you find the president. You find the president of the United States, and you find the president of the United States of America. Uh, no, the mm-hmm. third one is okay. We get president of the United States, president of the United States of America, and the office of president. And he said, "Well, that's interesting. What if we don't just assume that those are the same thing?" And he says, mm-hmm. "One of those two different offices. They're held by the same person, starting with George Washington. He didn't have to do that. He could have gone the other way." And so one of those offices is elected and the other is appointed. He says that once mm-hmm. George Washington was elected, then he appointed himself to the other office. They even have different start dates. One of them is start dates in the Constitution, and then there's, the other one there's a, an amendment uh, that, mm-hmm. that says when the start is. So one of them is the uh, is the king of is the is the head of government, and the other is the head of state. And in England, mm-hmm. they will know exactly what you're talking about because the prime minister is the head of state, whereas the king is the head of government. Or vice versa, I got backwards. Prime minister is the head of government, and the, and the king is the head of state. Uh, so, uh, all right, so Eduardo Rivera uh, started his, his school, which I'll think of the name of in a moment. And, uh, and you can become a student for a fee and, and uh, have access to all of his writings. He said that the Constitution did not create any new powers. And, and in fact, there was a, a lawyer, a French lawyer, who made an argument about that. He said, uh, Constitution of no authority. That was a French guy. The French guy would have been de uh, Tocqueville, I think. Anyway. Uh, I just say. Um, so this uh, Lysander Spooner said, wrote a book, Constitution of No Authority. Well, I didn't sign the Constitution. Why would that be binding on me? Mm-hmm. And usually the explanation is, well, uh, there was an a, there was a uh, election where you could have voted. And, um, and it was published. What What they they always have the danger of somebody else saying, well, yeah, I have that too. Um, yeah, I could have an election. Well, okay, uh, they had uh, their election uh, was was uh, published in the newspaper. So somebody said, come on, newspapers were a a big part of the way government got started. Publishing the newspapers that that makes it legitimate. And then your your election uh, isn't legitimate because it wasn't published in the newspaper. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And so they got there, they got there first, I suppose. Yeah, in in Hawaii, there's uh, someone in court with the 
Sorry. In the, in the entire state of Hawaii is illegitimate. There's a story about uh, how the United States took over Hawaii by force, which they even mm-hmm. teach the state school. And, and Queen Lili Lokwani said, um, I yield to the superior force of the United States. He said that to keep it on record so that her, her descendants someday might be able to reassert themselves. And mm-hmm. so uh, it, it's, it's, it ought to be embarrassing to everyone in Hawaii uh, ever since then that's been in court or dealt with the government who hasn't raised that issue. I mean, early on, it was it, for a while, it wasn't well known, but now it's well known. Um, mm-hmm. okay, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. I suspect they'll say, oh, you could have said it before, or, you know, you're too late. Some version will be too late. Anyway, instead of getting you speculating more mm-hmm. about that. Now we've got Edward Bernays and the masses, and what your attitude toward the masses was. Now, all of these elitists uh, wrote about, their, you know, the masons uh, wrote about the... Uh, you know, the perfectibility of man, and they're just going to go ahead and perfect us through their means, whether we like mm-hmm. it or not, in their, their idea of what perfect is. But they still, they still have their, you know, their idea that they were right in what they're doing. Um, Right, Bernays' mother was Freud's sister, which made him Freud's nephew. So we do not know whether Freud experimented on him. <laughs> uh, the dinner, you know, the, the pigeon guy who said that everything is a, a stimulus response. He put in a stimulus and get out a response. And he gave us uh, some conditioned reflexes. I'm thinking of Pavlov. Skinner, Skinner did uh, had birds in boxes, and he, he did these behavioral experiments. So his kid, somebody published photo drawings that he'd made of some devices that he'd made to make his, I think it was to give his kids, kids good posture. So there's this thing in the back to annoy mm-hmm. them, and there's this thing in the forehead or something. Uh, <laughs> You know, just from the way that he treated his kids, that they would grow up to be a little loony. So I wonder, I wonder how uh, if Freud experimented on this and produced it out. So his books, Bernays has explained the pub- importance of the public public relations and how to man- uh, manage a huge mass for propaganda and advertisement. And so there are a lot of quotes by him. And he even said that uh, propaganda is advocacy in favor of what we don't like, whereas relations is advocacy of what we do like. Well, I'm not sure where to go from there.
there's these seven, these seven habits that take the form of a guided meditation. Someone said that self-help uh, often is the same truths pack, repackaged differently. The same. You can trace back to ancient Greece, but uh, it's all packaged differently. Than they said. And then they say, but packaging is incredibly important because, for example, something your mother says, you don't, you don't uh, listen to it, but your friend says the same thing. All of a sudden, you get it. So the packaging importance. So I'm intrigued by the idea of packaging self-help into uh, into guided meditation. Mm-hmm. Generally, guided meditations will just get you relaxed and leave it at that, or they'll they'll talk to you in a generalized way about oh you're going to be successful and it's going to be wonderful and you are successful and all this. Just find mm-hmm. the details are details are better. All right, so his seven act. Seven habits are be proactive, begin with the end in mind. Yes, I know I've, I've not read this. Uh, first things first, think win-win. Seek to understand first before making yourself understood. Learn to synergize and sharpen the saw. Which is, of course, sharpening your own capabilities. So, yeah, I'm not sure where to go. I can walk through these. Being proactive means taking responsibility for everything. It's just blaming everything on somebody else. And uh, sticking to your commitments. There's an old saying in the legal world, hard cases make bad law. Um, there are hard decisions and, and easy decisions, and the interesting decisions are all the, always the hard ones. Uh, someone said back, you know, 200 years ago, interest on loans was looked at with suspicion, and the way the way England over, overcame that was kind of interesting. I think it was somebody made an argument that charging interest, charging uh, charging for the use of the money. It's not the same as charging for the money. The argument, the, the old argument was, well, money does not breed money, so it's not, it's immoral to charge money for the, for, you know, for borrowing money. And then they say, well, no, what we're actually charging for is not the money, it's the use of the money. And somehow that made it okay. Hmm. You might also say, well, I can, uh, I can trade money for sheep. Uh, so they're sort of equivalent, and sheep can multiply, and then I can trade money back. So it is that money does multiply, whatever. Or you could say, well, never mind all that. It's just freedom of contract. If we want to, if you want to have a contract where you you give me this, and then later I give you that, uh, who else? Nobody else is complaining that got hurt. Who, who is to say that we shouldn't have that contract? So and somehow that that doesn't seem to be part of the argument. Uh, medieval thinking is so different from ours. There's a famous opponent of Galileo who said, well, the number of planets must be seven because Galileo has built a telescope and looked at the sky and said it was another planet. And they said, no, 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 no. Since ancient times, we've only had seven planets. And you, you see, for example, there are seven windows in the head. There are seven orifices. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are seven metals. It's particularly ridiculous because we know there are more than uh, seven of something else, and seven colors of the rainbow, maybe. And it's for, 
From this and many other examples which it were tedious to enumerate, the number of planets must necessarily be seven. Probably you, but that's in the medieval world that was notably somebody somebody thought that somebody that somebody published and must have resonated fairly well with a reasonable number of people or it wouldn't have been publishable. Uh, so he would just said that in public. So uh, and we have you were talking about hermeneutic principles, so one of them is as above, so below, which from my perspective yeah. is vague. What does that mean? What, is there some notion of cause and effect? You could just as well say as below, so above. Um, we have now ever since the Enlightenment, where they had the idea of the other world as a clockwork and the, and the solar system as a clockwork and uh, uh, the world is, is predictable that things are it is clocks, where was I where is I going with that? Uh, opposed to uh, uh, just analogies. And Elon Musk talked about analogies versus critical thinking. Mm-hmm. So this this idea of seven of this, this uh, of course, must be done with that. And the idea of so as above, so below, without without a notion, a clear notion of cause and effect. Now we have the idea if we think of the world as being like a clockwork. Well, there's chains of cause and effect that go through this world. Not just that some other world is watching somehow and does. About. Anyway, uh, so Covius talks about external factors have the ability to cause pain. Your inner character doesn't need to be damaged. What matters most is how you respond to these experiences. And nowadays, that's a pretty standard idea. Is the trauma is how you respond to what happens? But uh, tie this in with Buddhism also. But it's certainly noticed that uh, suffering is caused by attachment. Mm-hmm. Something that's internal. Pain is caused by external events. Only, only if you have this internal attachment to get, that can hurt you. So, Scovius talks about pro- proactive people versus reactive people. All right. So he likes commitments. He says, by setting small goals and sticking to them, you gradually increase your integrity, which increases your ability to take responsibility for your life. Now, I was starting to say that, uh, about difficult decisions. Jesus said, uh, it's no big deal to love your enemy, but to love your friends. Even the tax collector does that. The challenge is to love your enemies. So we could look at that in a broader sense. Uh, things Things that are easy to do are barely worth anything. Whereas the things that are difficult. So if you if you're going to start on a journey of, of self improvement and you're only going to do easy things, you're probably not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And if you consider the questions, so ethics questions: Should I? And someone, someone wrote, uh, "There are uh, some men. It is against some men's principles to pay the interest." And it is against the interest of others to pay the principal. Hmm. So to take a principled stand against 
paying interest, it's a whole lot easier when you're the one that's due to pay the interest. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you had loaned the money to somebody else and they wanted to pay interest, they offered to pay interest. Oh no, no, I don't believe in that. So that's that's when you that's when your different values come into conflict, and that's when you uh, really test them and know what they are. Setting small goals and sticking to them that way, you, you don't have to get overwhelmed uh, by the difficulty. And you, there's a psychologist who said, uh, Habit is an important thing, habit is the only thing. And as, as I recall, he was part of the, he was a military man. And the military is all about drilling and doing things over and over until you get blue the So you have habits to do. You know, um, Addiction is a habit, and the force of habit is maybe the strongest, most powerful thing there is. So, when the if if the force of habit is the most powerful thing to use, how do you, what do you use to oppose a habit? Well, you use another habit. You have to form the form the habit of not being addicted. Uh, I read about chain chains, and this was a connection with linguistics. It was uh, Susan Suzette Elgin's book about verbal self-defense and the general art of verbal self-defense. She wrote the other one that titles like that. Uh, what was I going to say? Okay, I don't know about that. Action chains. An example is shaking hands because if you if something goes wrong, you have to start over. You can't you can't uh, pick it up where you left off. If you play an instrument, my memory, and you're playing a passage and you get lost, you can just pick it up, start over to someplace you practice picking it up from. And, um, oh, action change. Uh, so now action change and habits. Yeah, so you form you form habits uh, a piece at a time. You you can't make a you know a strong habit to oppose oppose something. Do the desire not bother doing the thing. That's what you do. So you first start with small start with small things. So then you repeat over and over, and you build up the habit of doing the, the thing that you decide you like to do. And so that's uh, and an action chamber. Uh, so you like say mission statement. Begin with the end in mind. You say you should have a mission, a personal mission statement. What you want to be, that's your character. What you want to do, that's your contributions and achievements, and the values upon which both of these things are based. And it, when I looked at uh, that Elon Musk article, Good Sauce, it mm-hmm. talked about the wants. What do you what do you want to achieve? He didn't talk about what you want to be, and he didn't talk about values exactly. Except you, if you if you make a list of of things you want in the way it must be, you have to. It's going to be based on your values. That's part of that process. Let's try to compare this to different things. In time, your mission statement will become your personal constitution. It becomes the basis for which you make every decision in your life. By making principles the center of your life, you create a solid foundation approach to flourish. So his principles are not contingent on external factors that don't waver. All right. And then he 
is organize things around their priorities. Someone said the word priority means only what is first. Fire might mean what is earlier. And so the idea of a top priority, no, there's only one thing that's priority, everything else is not. Uh, so we talk about sort of a ranking of things, but it would be number one, number two, number three. McCurley asks you, what one thing could you do regularly that you are currently doing that would improve your personal life? And so really, what, what one thing could you do to improve your business or professional life? Hmm. Uh, we can have more of a conversation, that would be good. So, so habit. Uh, so one habit uh, of, of uh, habit number one encourages you to realize you're in charge of your own life, and habit number two is based on the ability to visualize and to identify your key values. Habit number three is the implementation of those two habits. It focuses on the practice of effective self-management through independent will. How frequently you use your independent will is dependent on your integrity. Your integrity is how much you, you so how much you value yourself and how well you keep your commitments. Oh dear, habit is think win-win. You always have to give the other fellow some some reason to deal with you. There's a friend of mine that seeks out a mutual benefit for all concerned. Uh, life must be seen as a as a cooperation, not a competition. Uh, someone pointed out the word competition means to breathe together. No, no, no. To breathe together, that's conspire. Uh, compete is to strive together. You know, it's really interesting because, like, compete is to strive together. And then, what the hell? Um, there was another word. Was it conspire? Something about breathing together. I can't remember which word that was. Right. Maybe it was conspiracy right. to breathe together. And I yes, thought that was wild that it's like all these these words that like it's been such like a mind game that it's like they've been like so ingrained that they're bad. But it's like but if you look at the actual original definition, like they're so good. So like what happened that like there was this change in perception? Anyway, back to you. Well, the I, right the idea of conspiracy theory, the phrase conspiracy theory was was used first in public, uh, maybe not first. It's attributed to the CIA, and mm-hmm. they told the newspapers to smear as a conspiracy theorist anyone who didn't buy their theory of the magic bullet. Mm-hmm. Someone recently looked at the skulls. I think this fellow used to be in the Secret Service. Uh, man, I'm getting stories mixed up. This fellow looked at the uh, model of Kennedy's skull, which someone had made, and he looked at where the holes were, the in and out hole. And I think the uh, you, you would think you would if he was shot from the front. You know, I thought the, the back of his head was sort of blasted off, and Jackie Kennedy went and fetched a piece of it from the back of the car. Uh, 
But this, this, I remember a picture of a skull with with a, two holes and a knitting needle, and for putting the knitting needles to the to the two holes, you can find out which the direction the bullet went. Mm-hmm. And they did that. This fellow did that and traced the bullet backward. And he said, "Well, it went to a, it went to the Secret Service agent in the car behind him." And he said, "Oh, oh. I'm sure it went to the So being because he wants to stay alive, he said, "Oh, I'm sure he didn't mean intentionally shoot him." No, he, he said, I, "I'm sure that he he accidentally his gun went off when he, you know when he's surprised by the bang from from uh, behind him." Yeah. <sighs> now I wonder how that could be true and the Grassy Knoll story because the Grassy Knoll it was in front of him and there's that Zach Ruder film that shows um, I guess shows his head being knocked backwards. Uh, how is that how could that be true and also true that he was shot by this fellow behind him? Uh, so to adopt a win-win mindset, you must cultivate the habit of interpersonal leadership. How do you have these traits? Self-awareness, imagination, conscious and conscience, and independent will. You talk about spire, conspire, and to, to breathe together. Yeah, and the idea of a conspiracy theory, the idea of just conspiring is, well, considered to be a bad thing because right to crime to conspire. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do, at least conspire to do something bad, to do, to break the law. That's, a conspiracy is defined, when someone talks about conspiracy theory, you can say, well, can you tell me the definition of a conspiracy? It is an agreement between two or more parties on a definite plan to achieve an unlawful end or to achieve a lawful end by unlawful means. There has to be a definite plan. If you said, hey, let's get together and kill the Pope sometime, but yeah, sure, let's do that. That's not that's too vague to be a plan. So we also have words inspire to breathe in, to be inspired. Mm-hmm. If if I thought the air has more than just air in it, it has you know, some sort of uh, some sort of spirit that comes along with it. And then you really think about oxidation potential as as a spirit. And then expire to breathe out. And that's why we get the you know, the, the word. Dying is expiring. It breathed out for the last time. Okay. Inspire, expire, conspire. Argues to become an effective win-win leader, you must embrace five independent dimensions. Uh, if you have dimensions, we have to look at um, the uh, personality. Uh, Jordan Peterson likes the, the, the big five character traits. And mm-hmm. there's uh, another set of character traits, the MBTI, Myers-Briggs. And they've got four different traits that you can either have right, you can either have or not have any of them. So it gives you 16 combinations. Right. So with five, five traits, I guess you'd have uh, 25 combinations if you could either have or not have any of them. Sure, one, one, two. Most things are... Well, not most things are Gaussian distributions, but most people are in the middle. You could have some outliers higher low. Some things are like that, but but many things. Jordan Peterson said he went through life expecting things to be uh, um, 
plus star ground and mean, you know, and he, he, because that's the thing he studied in school, and he just assumed everything was in that mold. I mean, he discovered no, many things fit this power law, where, or, or the Pareto, the Pareto distribution is also called the power law. 20% of the salesmen make 80% of the sales. And if you look at those 20%, that's where this thing was discovered. He was a statistician who looked at that. And uh, then if you look at those 20%, Twenty uh, percent of those, eighty percent of those sales were made by twenty-eight percent of those salesmen, which means that four percent of the salesmen, twenty percent of twenty percent, right, were making eighty percent of eighty percent of the sales. So four percent of the sales were making sixty-four percent of the sales. Many things are like that, not uh, not randomly uh, distributed around the mean like that. So. Um, <laughs> Peterson thinks that, that the inequality of, of uh, is much is much more fundamental even economics. He says, look, even the stars have are distributed. Twenty percent, eighty percent of the mass is in twenty percent of the stars, or something like that. And you're not going to change. You're not going to change that by just by changing your economic system. Hmm. So he says, first seek to understand, then to be understood. Uh, and that's certainly true. And I've read about also introversion versus extroversion. Introverts can, can listen, whereas extroverts are compelled to talk. Mm-hmm. So if you can get used to being alone, and then you, you can get used to your thoughts and you can pay attention to things. Mm-hmm. The ability to communicate clearly is essential for your overall effectiveness. It's the most important skill you can train. And communication, of course, goes both directions. In the, in the study of foreign languages, they talk about reading, writing, listening, and speaking as the four basic skills to cultivate. While you, while you spend years reading, read, write, and speak, uh, state, Kobe states that little focus is given to training in skill of listening. Well, except that's what we're forced to do eight hours a day, six hours a day, eight hours a day while sitting in a chair. It's a whole lecture thing is all about listening. Although they, it's certainly true that they don't teach us anything about how. They just say, okay, sit in that chair and you're going to listen because we say, say that word to you. Naturally, there's a whole, there's a whole body of uh, literature on listening skills and what they are. Mm. Skills are solid. You'll naturally want to engage and listen to people without making them feel manipulated. Of course, if you're manipulative, then you, your next question is how do I manipulate people who do not think you're think you not manipulated. Uh, consequently, it's through your character that you transmit and communicate with what type of person you are. I think somebody, at least me, compared personality to clothing and character to, uh, well, I don't know. Personality is like you can change, you can take a, take one personality on and put another, off and put another one on. You know, so you could, you could act different at a dinner party than you would in front of your boss, or you different than you would in front of somebody else. Uh, whereas the character is who you are. Um, so again, character is also how you make difficult decisions when your values are pitted against each other, not with, with easy decisions. Uh, through it, people will come to instinctively trust and open up to you. While most people listen to the, with the intent of replying, this professional listener will listen with the intent to understand. This is known as the skill of empathic listening. Uh, the FBI 
teaches, you know, the hostage negotiators teach uh, active listening, which is where you take whatever somebody says and repeat it back to them to try to prove that you uh, have some comprehension. Mm-hmm. And so these hostage negotiators, if they're dealing with a total nutcase, if they, they find that they say their own words back to them, they say, oh, good, somebody understands me. So they can get cooperation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, empathic listening, uh, by doing that, you they, they see the world as, as they, okay, you can see the world as somebody else does, you feel the things the way they feel. Empathic listening, therefore, allows you to get a clearer, clearer picture of reality. And the word reality has been used to mean not only the, the objective thing around us, which is the only thing you have to mean, but it also means people's perceptions of reality. It's, it's, it's your reality versus my reality. And one of the principles of, uh, psycho, of dealing with psychos is everybody's everybody makes sense to themselves. And so you could ask a statement that was just made, uh, this must be, let's assume this is true. Now, what could it, what world, what universe could it be true or what reality could it be true of? Once you think you've understood the situation, the next step is to make yourself understood. This requires courage. Habit number six is synergize. Term synergy was coined by Buckminster Fuller. He's the guy that designed mm-hmm. domes. And in the design mm-hmm. of the dome, he separated. Yeah, he has a thing called tensegrity, which is basically stick, stick in the string structures. He said you can make them very large if you want to make big, big things in outer space. That's, he'd, he'd start with that, I guess. Uh, so the idea, I think the idea between separating uh, tension and, and oppression as opposed to having fear is that you can use different materials. Some materials are good in compression, like concrete. And some materials are good in tension, like metal. You can have a metal wire. You cannot have a concrete wire. A con- concrete cup breaks breaks if you try to you know, pull it apart. Mm. So, uh, say, uh, yeah, he, he uh, designed the domes that uh, are used in, that, that they to cover sports. Sports stadiums, he was contacted one by one individually to design those things. So he uh, came up with synergy also, created uh, with some of his parts. Okay. So he wants to apply these principles to creative cooperation that uh, a group of people has been in some of its parts. You know, we want creative cooperation. And everything you do. Okay. Uh, so it's a creative process that requires vulnerability, openness, and communication. It means balancing the mental, emotional, and psychological differences between a group of people. And in, so, in doing so, create new paradigms, creating new paradigms of thought between the group members. This is where creativity is maximized. Of course, you've got to have teamwork. That goes without saying. And Habit number seven is sharpening the saw. 
increasing your increasing your uh, your skill level. There's an old saying: if I had eight hours to cut down a tree, I would spend six of those hours sharpening my saw. Hmm. Exercise, nutrition, and stress management. Getting enough sleep, eating right, exercising. Uh, two is social, emotional. Service, empathy, synergy, and intrinsic security. These provide you with a value of feeling security and meaning. Number three, spiritual. Value of clarification and commitment, study, and meditation. In focusing on this area of your life, you get closer to your center and your inner value system. Number four is mental. Reading, visualizing, planning, and writing. To continually educate yourself means expanding your mind. This is essential for effectiveness. So you should uh, express and exercise all four of these motivations. Regularly, consistently, consistency, consistently. He thinks this is the most important investment you can make in your life as you're the instrument of your performance. I think Ben Franklin said, "Empty your purse into your head; you cannot then be robbed by any man." And he's this guy is broadening that from just the middle to this middle and spiritual and social and emotional and physical. And he thinks that uh, a positive effect of shopping in the saw in one dimension is it has a positive effect in another because they're interrelated. Mm. Uh, And you should get to each area with balance as to overindulge in one area means to neglect another. All right. So that's a quick summary of the seven. Should be especially have to do a little bit of uh, guided meditation. Uh, um, we only have we've got about nine minutes left. Okay, well, yeah. I'm not sure if you can squeeze something into about five minutes there, or if you want to continue doing something. But I will shut up. Well, okay. Um, right, remember your. Uh, one point is like your imaginary center of gravity. And I learned about this in Aikido. You can do things more effectively, physical things, and probably mental things more effectively when you're when you've got this this uh, this mentality. You, you imagine your center of gravity being low. You can be under the floor. It can be down to the, toward the center of the earth. And the, the idea is the the feeling continues. And down deeper, 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 the feeling continues. If the feeling ever stops, then you're in the wrong mode. So you want you you want one thing always to flow into the next. You know, the feeling continues. And they also talk about one point being infinitely small, and so you consider something that size, and then the size of you, and then the size of the universe. The feeling continues. Or conversely, it's universe yourself, one point, the feeling continues. Uh, so you imagine you're before doing anything physical, uh, possibly anything at all. Uh, you could start by imagining your center of gravity and then setting it down and to be under the ground. Talking to us about to the lady at the store, because uh, I said, "How are you?" And she said, "Oh, I feel like I want to kill myself." And she was, she was of course joking. But I said, "Well, next time you feel like that, you can." Uh, you know, you want to get grounded, and, and, and I told her about this, lowering your center of gravity. And she said, oh, I, I used to ride horses. I have a, or maybe she still rides horses. She said, I have a thing like that 
but I do a mental trick. Uh, when I've got my feet in the stirrups and I'm trying to balance, and that's difficult. He says, I imagine that my feet are going all the way down to the ground. And I recognize that as a very similar thing. And now I'm reminded of karate where you, you don't, or boxing or whatever, where you don't aim for the surface, you aim for the uh, aim for a point inside and behind the surface. So she was aiming her feet not on the stirrups, but below that, the ground. So that might help someone somehow, somewhere out there. Now we've got an odd amount of time, like a minute and a half now. There's a filmmaker named Miranda July who made a uh, film, I think it was like something like Me and You and Everything We Know. She was a performance artist and her movie was based on her, the ideas of performance art. So she walked with someone uh, down to the end of the block. He said, well, this, this walk is going to represent the rest of our lives. And they got halfway the block and said, okay, now our, our kids are starting to grow up or whatever it was. And, okay, now our, now our kids are growing and we're starting to retire. And then, okay, here we are. Nice, nice knowing you. <laughs> and we got to the curb. That was a memorable scene. Hmm. And it does give us a different perspective on time because it simply maps hmm. the large, the large amount of the small one. So, along with lowering one point, we can have relaxing the muscles as much as possible. As you relax the muscles, you also relax the mind. And your, your brain waves can go slower. Uh, Jose Silva studied brain waves a bit, and he was uh, very much in fear. He, he thought the, the, he was a radio man. He said, well, the brain is electrical. What could happen if you could uh, lower the resistance? So he thought that relaxing was the key to lowering the resistance of your brain. And it's not literally true, literal electrical resistance, but it's metaphorically true. If you have competing thoughts, and those are all resistance to whatever you're trying to trying to get done. Before doing anything, we should relax. Silva likes to count with a three, two, one method. Number three, you're now at level three, and so forth. And you're now at level two, and you're now at level one. Congratulations, here you are. Where are you? Doesn't matter. You're at level one. So. But it's a it's a thing that you can do that that reinforces the habit of okay I'm I'm, I'm relaxing now. So at lower one point and yeah, get your your muscles relaxed and get your mind to slow down, and then you'll be ready for uh, to to sense what's going on. You can ready to re- react to things and uh, make your plans without execute your plans without your mind to do All right. I'm getting 8.55 now. My goodness. Um, little kids don't appreciate magic tricks until they're about eight years old because they don't have a strong sense of what's supposed to happen. You put this ball over here, put that ball over there, and all of a sudden they switch places. Well, of course, isn't that what, what they always do? No, this ball always stays here. So until they have a, a clear idea of, of how things are supposed to happen, the idea of, of a magic trick and the idea of something different happening just doesn't work. 
one of my earliest memories was watching TV, and it was a the clown, the Hocus Pocus show, uh, mm. and he and he did some magic tricks. And I remember, I think I remember a trick involving a, involving two bottles. And uh, later, when I when I grew up, I met the man. I, I joined the magic club, and he was in it. He was a very jolly fellow. When I was in high school, I got the loudest uh, applause at graduation, and I think it was because of the magic tricks and the magic shows that I did. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what else it would be. When I was in math class, I, I solved the snowflake. There's the snowflake problem that the, the teacher was unable to solve, and I solved it. Mm-hmm. And so he made uh, somebody in the class made a little a little greeting card, homemade greeting card with a picture of a snowflake on it, and said, "Congratulations." <laughs> Yeah, also when I was in high school I made some square gears impossible therefore what's the closest I can come to doing that and so you you have the the corner of one gear opposed to the center of the other and so the only discrepancy is diagonal plus side versus uh, two, nine, seven, nine, okay, so um, yeah. Another thing that's it's impossible is to put, is to make a tiling with pentagons. You can you can make a tile wall with triangles or squares, right? Or uh, or hexagons, but you cannot with pentagons. And that may be why pentagons are re- regarded as a satanic, uh, you know, satanic symbol, and they just they just don't fit together. So my question was how close can I come to tiling the plane with pentagons? Can I, objects that have pentagonal symmetry. And so if you take five objects, you can start with pentagons, you, t- you take five objects and put them together, you're going to have a space in the middle, and that's a new, also going to have a five-fold symmetry. So that's your next object. You take five of that object and and uh, and put them together, and there's a space in the middle. And so by building up, there's no, there's no upper limit to the size of the things, but uh, they're all, they're all five Five-fold symmetry, and they and they tile the plane. Uh, and we, we also have to have. Can you have a tiling that's consistent? Um, yeah, I had the idea of, of forming this thing out as a big spiral in order to solve some obscure problem. Uh, I'm going to have yeah. to cut you off here, though, because we got 30 seconds left. So I want to say a big thank you for coming on the show tonight with us and sharing all that you know. And I want to say a big thank you to all the listeners who tuned in tonight. Have a very happy Friday, you guys. I'll catch you guys again hopefully soon. Bye-bye.